the book of Titus applicable to Mother's Day? <laughs> this is going to be tough, right? If you saw the cover of the bulletin, you know what I'm up against. Titus, uh, this is a letter. This is a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was a Greek guy. He was not a Jew. He traveled around with Paul on a lot of his missionary journeys. Uh, Titus was there at the Council of Jerusalem in 50 AD when the church decided that, you know what, it is okay that Christians don't have to follow all of the laws. Maybe the Ten Commandments is a pretty good idea, but all the kosher stuff, circumcision, you know what, we are going, they decided right then and there that they're not going to follow the Jewish traditions and the cultural practices and all of the specific details that drove most people crazy. And so Titus was there at the council of Jerusalem, and he was a Greek, and he is probably going, Phew, I don't have to get circumcised. Right? He's like, this is, sign me up. I dodged. Kids, if you don't know what circumcision is, ask your mom and dad when you go home. And so Titus, uh, he was given a commission to open churches on the island of Crete. A beautiful island. I've been there myself. It's gorgeous. And it is, it's got a specific culture to it. You know, if you've traveled the Mediterranean, you know, Italy has a certain flair. Greece has a certain flair. Uh, all of them have their own uniqueness. Um, they're all a little bit crazy, right, George? Greeks are, all, you know, this is the Mediterranean culture. It's just, but they're passionate. They eat good food. They love life. And Crete had its own unique culture. And uh, Titus is commissioned to minister to it. And this is what um, Paul initially writes. This is, again, this is a letter to Titus. Now, some of Paul's other letters, they're not personal correspondence. He writes them to the whole church. Those are called epistles, right? The epistle to, you know, uh, the Galatians. So he's writing it to to a, a congregation in whole. But this one's different because this is to one leader, one specific leader. So that basically that's the difference between an epistle and a letter, Epistles for everybody. This is for one specific leader who has got a very difficult assignment in ministering to people in Crete. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he's like, come on, man, you're not doing your job. That's what this, this is like, well, this is an inner office memo thing, saying you're not doing your job, dude. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, probably one wife at a time, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, nor pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good. 
So when you read Titus, I want to encourage you to get your highlighter or your underliner. And then I want to track two words, good and self-control. Those are the two major words that get repeated over and over again in this book. And so whenever a word is repeated over and over again, he wants you to pay attention to it. One who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, there's the other key word for us today, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose. Okay, so these are the qualifications for a pastor or an elder. They call them elder here, but probably for our cases, it might even just be pastor because they are individual home churches that these elders are appointed to oversee. And so these overseers, and again, Second Timothy, he goes over uh, in detail more of the qualifications of what it takes to be an elder or a pastor. And it seems like an impossible checklist, an impossible to-do list. And I'll tell you this, I'm not refuting what Paul says, because he's true, it's true in what he says. He says, like, if a... If a leader, if a woman of God or a man of God, if they, if they can't have control and peace over their own household, how can they manage the church? Yeah, so that's what he's saying. Because, and I know this to be true just from personal experience, what takes place in the leader's home gets translated into the body of Christ. So whatever good things that we get to experience here at Granite Creek, that's the result of our leaders living a life that is consistent and there's integrity at home in addition to integrity in our fellowship. So there's that going on. Now, have you ever had a kid that was wild and rebellious? (laughs) I've got some hands going up. It's tough, isn't it? It's very difficult. But here's, okay, here's this incredible long list that we are supposed to follow, the qualifications of an elder. And yes, they need to be followed. And to the T, I'm not, I don't know if I believe that, to be sure. Because there is this area of the grace of God that we are 100% con- convinced of. And here's what we know about God and God's children. God has a bunch of wild, rebellious children. Does that disqualify God from being God? Does that disqualify God from being a leader? You know what, Jesus? I'm just not going to follow you because all of your kids are wild and rebellious. (laughs) Right? Does that make sense? Now, I'm not trying to make excuses for my behavior. But what I am saying whether it's here, no matter what church you end up in, young people, look, this probably won't be the church that you go to for the rest of your life. We just know that by statistics. But you need to find a church. And you need to identify with leadership that have integrity. And guess what? Their life is not going to be perfect. It's just not. And I believe that Paul actually gets into this and addresses it. But he's saying, like, this is the perfect situation to have the perfect person in leadership. 
I'll give you an example why this is probably quite impossible. So my father was a young pastor, got assigned to a church in a city I won't name, by a denomination I won't name. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a good church. Very strict, very, you know, by the book. And so we had a Christmas play. And uh, I'm a little wild, folks. A little, I've toned down in my older age, but a little wild, a little rebellious. And I thought it would be a great idea, as I am Joseph in the Christmas play, as we were walking down the aisle, uh, arm in arm with Mary, the mother of Jesus, I thought it would be a great idea to break away from her mid-aisle and run down the center of the church and with my staff pull vault up onto the stage. You know, do one of these. Yeah, and, and everybody laughed, and it was great. It was awesome. <laughs> and I got a very uh, well-deserved spanking after that. People, discipline your child. There's nothing wrong with giving them a good whooping. And I got whooped. And I, you know what? I came out okay, right? I didn't spend too much time in counseling. Spare the rod, spoil the child, right? But here's what I'm getting at. Did my little outburst, that little momentary issue of wanting attention, being a little wild, being a little rebellious... Should have that disqualified my father from running that church? No, but there are people that thought so. And I guarantee you, in that church, in that self-righteous group of believers, they quoted this scripture to him. (laughs) I don't think it's fair. Because, you know, when you boil it all down, they were really just looking for a reason to tell them that we don't like how you're fitting here. Does that make sense? All right, so that's what we're looking at today. This is chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God in contrast to the law of God, we are now moving into the new covenant. We're not saying that the old covenant wasn't working. We're just saying that Jesus is completing the old covenant. There is a completion to this. There is a freedom that comes to this. There has been a legal separation from God's people and the very loving presence of God, there was a wall, there was a, there, there was a barrier. Like the ancients before Jesus, they couldn't do what we just did in worship. They could not enter into the Holy of Holies with all confidence because they weren't perfect. Only once a year could the, you know, the, the, the leader of all leaders that was able to fulfill all of these perfect things, could he walk into the Holy of Holies and minister to the Lord in the Lord's presence? Only that he could do it. 
and they tied a rope around his ankle, and they made him shake a bell on his ankle as he was ministering to the Lord in the Holy of in God's presence. And sometimes the guy would die, and they had to drag him out with the rope because the glory of God does, it just can't stand the lack of integrity. It can't put up with sin. So, man, that's frustrating. But Jesus says that we have integrity in him, that he is the mediator. He, he takes on all of our sin. He put all the sin on him on the cross so that we can enter into God's presence with confidence, even though we are mindful about how screwed up we really are. It's really a great deal being able to feel God's presence in this way. So grace, not the law. God's grace that brings salvation. And he has, has appeared to all men. Everybody gets the opportunity to tap into God's grace. God's salvation grace. And for us in this room, God's empowering grace. So my charge for you today is to tap into God's empowering grace. You're saved. You're going to heaven. There is more for you. And it still rests within the realms and dimensions and the facets of grace. We are not going to be able to get our heads around grace this side of heaven. I'm just telling you there's more to it. And it's deeper. And it's wider. And it gives us strength and empowerment. It... Verse 2, it, grace, teaches us to say no. Let me work you over here. Like, maybe you need the objective word of God to tell you what is right and what is wrong. But there is also this thing called grace. We have the Holy Spirit, the great counselor. I'm not saying that we get to throw our Bibles away because we've got to have this objectivity because we're human because some of us, are, we live in a black and white world, and we need it. But God's grace, that is what teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You can even pencil in evil age if you would like. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who made himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. Again, the key words here, self-control and good. Eager to do what is good. What is good? To be encouraged by what is good. All right, there's a lot going on in these few verses. What is our motivation for wanting to be good? I am going to, let's just pretend like I'm a junior high boy, a high school boy. I am going to save myself for marriage because if I don't, bad things will happen to me. Or, I'm going to save myself for marriage because of the grace of God. That's my motivation. For the goodness of God. That's why I want to do good. 
not because I'm going to break the rules and I'm going to get punished, but I am motivated to do good, to live holy, to live an upright life because I've experienced God's goodness and his grace to me. The natural reaction, the, the natural response when we understand the grace of God, when we're able to reason, oh my gosh, God gave it all for me? That not only can I live eternal, but that I can live life and live it to the full? You see, that's your motivation. That is your why. Not because, well, you know what, if I, if I continue this lifestyle and I get hit by a Mack truck, I just might go to hell. Yeah, you ever feel like that? That's a, that's a weak motivation. I'm not saying, it's a, I'm not saying that, that hell is an illegitimate motivation. I'm not saying that the stick doesn't motivate, but the carrot is much better. The carrot motivation, the Holy Spirit, God's goodness, God's grace that motivates us, that is, that's the better of the two. That is where we begin to live in joy and hope and fullness of the Spirit. We can actually walk in freedom. That's a good deal. While we wait for the blessed hope. Okay, whenever the Bible talks about the blessed hope, he's talking specifically about the second coming of Jesus. He says, the blessed hope is coming. Jesus is coming back. That is our great hope. Like you're in this, you're in this wicked generation, right? And every generation has been, able, has been living in a wicked and perverted generation. There's nothing new going on here. It's just the same problems, just different players, different circumstances. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, there's a couple of things that are new under the sun. But Jesus is coming back. That is our hope. And what Paul is trying to communicate to Titus, to communicate to these Cretans, what he's saying is, look, Jesus is coming back. You need, to live an, you need to let the grace of God motivate you to live an upright life. Like goodness is good in and of itself. I'm not going to read this part, but he goes on to say, um, Jesus is coming back. You need to obey those in authority over you. The politicians, the leaders, the governors. You need to... You need, to con- you need to invest in the future. You need to know that, that this life that you are living, that there's a different way to live. You need to marry. You need to begin to cultivate homes where goodness takes place and so that you may be profitable. Jesus is coming back. When's Jesus coming back, everybody? When's he coming back? What's our theology? What's our eschatology here at Granite Creek? He's coming tomorrow or when he's ready. That's, our, that's my eschatology. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I will repent tomorrow when he does not come back. I will fully admit that I am wrong. But there is that expectation of his return. But let's just say that you know, we ran the numbers, we looked at the stars, we did some graphs in the Bible, did some really good eschatology stuff, and we figured out that Jesus is going to return in about a month. How would you live your life? 
your tax bill is due. Would you pay your tax bill? I got some right, right off the bat. I got some. Would you pay your bills if you knew that Jesus was coming back? Would you show up to work if you only had a month to live? What would you do with your life? Would you live it any differently? How would your relationships be if your time was limited? The, the hope of glory is coming. My dad said back in the Jesus people movement, like, they were pretty convinced that Jesus was coming back. The stars were lining up. It looked like it was going to happen, right? And so people like, wouldn't even name their kids because, you know what, Jesus is coming back in a couple of days. When Jesus comes, I'm going to let him name my kid. That's what they actually believed. So they have their kids, and they call them baby. Weird, isn't it? And it's not that weird when we actually think about it. They quit visiting the doctor. They quit taking their pills. They quit cultivating a life. They quit investing. They quit planning for the future. So here's what Paul is saying. We have the hope of glory. Jesus is coming back tomorrow, and you ought to live with that sense of urgency, but that does not excuse you from being mature adults. That does not excuse you for providing for your family, draining your, your savings account, because Jesus is coming back. So that's what Paul is saying. Now you guys need to change the way that you think about this. Yeah. Here's the fun part. So hopefully we all get that. Here's the fun part. Yeah, we talked about um, how, you know, what's the requirements of a good leader. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul goes on to say, For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group or the Judaizers, the religious elite. These are the ones that, that like culture is a big deal for them. Like, there really is no difference between culture and the kingdom of heaven. I'll flesh that out in a minute. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said... Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Let me stop there for a second. Like, like Paul is not your politically correct pastor. Like, we need to send him to cultural sensitivity training because he's prejudiced. It has been said that Cretans are liars, they're brawlers, and they're lazy. And Paul says, that's true. They are, <laughs> right? We can't get away with that in our culture today if we, if we singled out a specific group and, you know, all the stereotypes and we just applied the stereotypes and we said, yeah, it's true. They are that. That just wouldn't go over. Like, we can't do that. But Paul does it. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith 
and they will pay no attention to Jewish myths or commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupt and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, their minds and their consciousness are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit to do anything good. What is he talking about? Okay, so Cretans. Um, so as Paul says, they are liars, they are evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. The word of the Lord. <laughs> um, Crete was a island, again, a beautiful island, had a culture of its own. It's where your mercenaries went to hang out. So it was known for men of hire that were used to doing whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted to, at a cost, at a price. They could get away, in essence, they were paid to murder. That's what this community was about. And they were really good at lying. And they were really good at cheating and getting the upper hand. That, that is the basis of this culture. You ever heard of the term, you know, you Cretan? We don't use it. It's kind of fallen out of fashion, but to call somebody a Cretan is to you know, basically call them a lowlife. So Timoth- or Titus has to minister to these, this group of people. And so, okay, you can totally understand why the theme would be self-control and goodness, because that's what these guys are not. They are not self-controlled, and they are not good. They are in it for themselves. Um, Their God, their Greek God, the part of their culture that seeped into, and probably even into their teachings in the early church, their Greek God was Zeus. And Zeus is, you know, he's the powerful Olympian God, but he is um, our, we have Zeus today, believe it or not, and he's called James Bond. So we think to ourselves, yeah, you're right, to be lazy, to be a glutton, to be a cheat, to be a con man, that's not, that's not a good thing. That's not acceptable behavior. We can't respect that. But there, every guy loves James Bond. What is James Bond good at? He's just like Zeus. He likes to woo women, lots of them, and he's good at it. He's got woman skills, right? Same thing. Same thing going on here. He has it easy. He gets his martini, was it stirred and not shaken? Everything is just, he, he gets his relaxed lifestyle, you know, and then he goes on adventures. He's the mercenary for hire. We respect James Bond, and he cheats at cards, right? And we respect that. Yeah, he got him. He pulled a fast one over him, and we respect it. So it's really kind of insincere of us to actually, from our modern perspective, to judge the Cretans and their appreciation for Zeus and Zeus's ability to get women, to get material objects, and to pull a fast one over on people when we actually value that same characteristic. We just don't preach about it on Sunday. And Paul is saying, this isn't a good... These aren't good values here. 
right? He's saying these are good values. He opens up the book and he says, uh, I am an apostle of God. I've been appointed by God. Um, and there's even believed that, that Jesus instructed Paul face to face. There's theories about that. And so he has got full knowledge of God's goodness. And right out of the bat, he says, God who is good, who there is no untruth in him. It is, he is incapable of lying. So he starts off his book, God does not lie. He can't. And the reason why he does it, we read it, it goes right over our heads, is because he's referencing Zeus, who is the liar of all lying gods. Isn't that cool? Is that specific to them? It's that pointed to them? Now, you have to read, when you read Paul, unfortunately, you really have to turn on your mind. You have to think about what he's writing. You have to put it into context because there's a couple of things going on here. I don't know if you picked it up because there's two groups of people. There are these Cretans. There are these mercenary party animals whom you don't want your daughter dating. So there's these wild and crazy guys, and probably gals too, yes, women too, because it wasn't fashionable to marry in Crete. So you could live your liberal lifestyle, and it was celebrated. So you could actually get, a, get away with um, like being a prostitute, and it was respectable. We, could, we don't even do that in our society. We don't respect prostitutes, I don't think. But they did. Anyway, so that's what they're dealing with. Um, and so we have actually in this, between verses 10 and 16, Paul is addressing in a masterful way, and again, you have to turn your brain on to see it, he is addressing two groups. He's addressing two different worlds. One we totally get. Yeah, you're right, Paul. They are a bunch of Cretans, liars, cheats, and lazy gluttons. And yes, they need self-control. But I don't know if you caught the other part because it's crammed in here. It's... uh, those mere talkers, those deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group, the Judaizers. And so he's addressing a very specific religious group that want to change the Cretans. They culturally want to change them. I'm all about transforming culture. I think that it's needed. Like, there is... We know this, right? There's like, there's evil that is prevailing in our societies and it needs to be addressed. There is injustice that's happening on a daily basis and we are called to minister to those injustices to transform our families and our culture. That's the mission of our church, by the way. But... I don't, I don't think that it was God's desire or will to make the Cretans look like Jews. God saw them as Cretans. God created them as Cretans. Like, maybe it's hard to find it, but there's really good things about these people. They had amazing food. They had amazing music. Like, their community groups were really tight. They were adventure seekers. And God did not want to take that from them, but the Judaizers did. They say, 
in order for you to be saved, you must look like us, act like us, behave like us, eat like us, drink like us. You must be circumcised like us. And Paul is saying to us, he says it to them right here in this, in this, in this passage, and he's saying it to us, self-control. Self-control. We must be mindful and we must understand that we have to possess self-control. And it's not just self-control over the brownies. It's not self-control over, should I have another beer? It's not just self-control over the base impulses of, of our flesh. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit for a very specific reason because it is multifaceted like every other fruit in in Galatians 5. It is to be administered to even in a religious setting. He's saying to Titus, you need to practice self-control with those heathens and you also need to practice self-control with the Judaizers. Don't fall prey to what they're teaching because what they're teaching is destroying whole households. The Judaizers are not teaching whole households to party hardy. The Judaizers are teaching entire households that in order for them to go to heaven, they have to literally change their culture and their uniqueness. And if you just look at what Jesus has done to our world... It is fascinating because the way that we express worship here at Granite Creek is completely different than how they're expressing worship in India. We are the same church. We have everything in common because we love Jesus. Yet everything that we do, our clothes and our hair and the music that we like is completely different. Like we, I, the, the secular media has falsely judged us saying that we have, well, we do have an agenda. I have a huge agenda. I'll be Frank, about that, I do have a huge agenda. But what I don't want to do is to say the gospel message is wrapped up into American cultural Christianity. And in order for you to fit in and, and, and believe, you have to look like us, act like us, and listen to our music. Jesus has never said that. Some of us live that way, right? I, you know, you see it when you do youth ministry, you know, the kid that gets saved, and he's having issues with identity. And so when he gets saved, he dresses like and acts like the youth pastor. Because he thinks that that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We have to wear the bracelet that says, what would Jesus do in order to be a follower of Christ? You have to, you know, you have to skate and say, praise him in the right way in order to be follower of Christ. And what Jesus is saying here, what Paul is saying to the Cretans is, I want you to be you just transformed. I did a little, uh, did a little research yesterday on, um, on liars, brawlers, and lazy gluttons. So I looked up where the most uh, the laziest city in America, the most violent city in America, 
in the most corrupt cities in America, the ones that are prone to dishonesty. And the one that, that, that hit all three criteria... No, no, actually not. It's New Orleans. New Orleans is the one. Uh, over 30% of their individuals, they deem lazy. They're all overweight and none of them work. They are brawlers. They like to fight. They're prone to violence, so there's more violent crime there than in most cities. And they're obvious, I mean, just think about Mardi Gras. They're, they're drunkards. And so it's easy for us to prejudge New Orleans, right? They're gluttons, they're lazy, they're brawlers. Is it true? <laughs> the statistics say that it is. So what are we to do with that? Could you imagine if we came into the city of New Orleans and we forced them to be cultural Christians? I mean, me, I think that would be kind of sad. Now you guys are all a bunch of sinners, gluttons, lazy, losers. And therefore, you cannot have your parade. You cannot have your cool jazz music. You cannot be who you are. You must act like us and look like us and be conformed to our identity. You must Judaize and you must circumcise. And see, I believe that the leader, the man, the woman of God that is truly practicing the fruit of the Spirit and has that, because what's the hardest one? The hardest fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And the what we're teaching it right in our you know the way that we're teaching it right now the fruit of the spirit the fruit of the spirit is not something it's not the result of a righteous lifestyle the fruit of the spirit is the thing that we go after first and we eat it right I think that's what it should mean I don't, it does the Bible doesn't say like when you're a good little boy and you follow all the rules and you read your Bible and you memorize the scriptures and you're good and you don't say bad words and then the fruit will come out of that and people will recognize you by your fruit. I, that's just not what it's saying. The, the fruit of the Spirit is the thing that we pursue and we eat. Ah, I'm just lacking in self-control, Lord. And the Holy Spirit will prompt us and say, you need to sit at the table and eat this fruit right now. Self-control. And I want you to think about self-control. What is that? Okay, we understand what it means in the pagan sense. But what does it mean against the Judaizers, the circumcision? It is that spirit of religion that we need to be self-controlled about. And maybe that just lost you right there. But I'm going to tell you, it applies to everyday life. Because even though you have people in your life that do not go to church, they would never darken the door. They are plagued by the spirit of religion because the spirit of religion says, I must have control. I must get ahead. I must manipulate and maneuver and have power, and I will step on people to get it. Hmm? That's the spirit of religion. I will take away people's right to enter into relationships. So, 
our application. I want you to think about what it means to be self-controlled. Again, we all get the moral side of it. What does it mean to be spiritually self-controlled? It requires wisdom. I had a really vivid dream the other night, and I really feel like I need to share it with the congregation that I'm going to save entire generations from protesting in the streets. Spiritual self-control says, you know what, maybe I need to think about that. And Lord, is that really from you, or is that pizza? Right? Spiritual self-control says, hey, I don't like so-and-so. I don't like Pastor Janie. I have a vendetta against Pastor Janie. She's driving me crazy. She did something the other day that rubbed me the wrong way. And then what do I do? Well, I'll just get the Bible out, and I'll just quote this Titus scripture that says, if your kids are naughty, you're not fit to be a pastor. See? You see how well it's done? No, you see, when you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit, you must practice self-control. And the filter for every single fruit of the Spirit is love. It has to be done out of love. And it has to be done with confidence. All right. So, Jesus does not want to take away the, Cret- the Cretans' culture, what makes Cretans Cretans. It was not his desire that the whole society wore, you know, head skull caps and sang their prayers in a certain way. No, he wanted them to sing the songs that they loved to sing and the way that they sung them and just attach Jesus into it. Jesus is kind of like a parasite to cultures. He will come into a culture and he'll take it over and transform it and make it what it was supposed to be, how Jesus views the city and views the culture and views us in heaven. Because what does it say? To the pure, all things are pure, but to the corrupt, to the corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. Don't like the culture at your work? Find what is pure. And focus what is, on, what is pure. Chapter 3, verse uh, 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Okay, he's t- again, he's talking about both sides of the aisle here. He's talking about fleshly pleasures and religious control. Because usually when you're, you're religious, you're hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared to us, he saved us. Not because of our righteous things that we have done. Did you catch that? Who's the audience? Not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. Here we go, folks. This is it. This changes everything. This is the game changer right here. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, this is a trustworthy saying. There is no lies in what I just read. He washed us. 
We are renewed by the Holy Spirit. Believers, you need this renewal. It's like a practice. You need to be filled up continually in the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that there's one baptism, right? But there are multiple fillings of the Spirit. You cannot give what you do not have. And you need more. And he is generous with this Spirit. The Holy Spirit has so much of it. It's eternal. It's infinite. You have infinite goodness, infinite joy. There is no end to God's filling us up with hope, with empowerment, with grace. He says, I want you to stress these things. You need to stress this gospel. You need to stress the good news. You need to stress being filled with the Spirit. You pay attention to this. Forget about the law. I'm going to continue reading because he says it better than I can. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And goodness is another fruit of the Spirit. These things are excellent and profitable to everybody. When I spoke about the spirit of poverty, that hit anybody's soul. You're always struggling. You're always fighting. You're always feeling like you can't make the bills. Like in here is the secret, really, I believe. It is goodness. It is this trust, trusting God. The, the self-control of trust. You have, a, you have a hard time with that? Can you fully put your trust in God? Do you have the self-control to fully trust God? I know what your word says, Lord. I know what theology is. Can I... I'm going to move myself into trust. And what happens when we do? What happens when we trust God? When our mind says, okay, I'm there. It becomes goodness in our life. It is excellent. And for those of you who are struggling with the spirit of poverty, it is profitable. Profitable. Some of us think that we profit off of wickedness. Some of us think that we profit off of, you know, cheating at cards, being James Bond, right? No. True profitability comes when we trust God with a self-controlled mind. Hmm? All right. I have uh, somebody to introduce to you. And we have a very unique church. I really do love our church. I think it's the best church in the world. I really do. And, and I love its uniqueness. Like, we are uniquely designed and created, and I love every aspect of it. Uh, church uh, growth models say that, you know, if you want to be a healthy, growing, successful church, you need to drill down on your target market. This is what the folks say. I have rebelled against it. I don't like it. And that's why we're not a megachurch. Because I love each and every one of you. I love your age. I love your color. I love your ethnicities. And I'm not going to bow down to what the marketers say makes a healthy church. (laughs) This is... 
This is a healthy church. We have poor people in our number. And we have middle class people in our number. We, we represent every demographic here. I love it. And this is what, I believe this is what the model of Christ would want for his church. So this is what we fight for. This is what we're going to continue to protect. Um, we represent educated and uneducated. Could you imagine if we were just like, you know what, we're only going to minister to professors. <laughs> Man, could you imagine how, oh, that would be like, oh my gosh. That would be boring. <laughs> like, tell some jokes, pastor. And one of the areas that, um, that we love and that we minister to are the Claremont Colleges. And um, uh, I'm going to introduce you to some church family that you just don't know. Here's what I've also learned, too, lately, that some of you have been coming to this church for two to seven years, and you don't know each other's names. So I can just tell you, well, just, down, take, you know, whatever, we'll figure that out later. But this is somebody, this is church family for us. We have been doing life together for four years. Um, Tamara Skinner just graduated from Claremont McKenna. And... Uh, She's been a part of our college ministry in Mako and her eat lots of pastries together and talk about spiritual things. But the relationship that we developed with their parents has been precious. And God puts people in our lives for a specific reason. And Eric and Sonia have been put into our lives. And the, one of the reasons why I have been able to minister to you on certain levels is because Eric ministered to me spoke into my life. We, we talk every once in a while. We see them whenever there's an event at the colleges and they come out and Eric is a man of God and I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, this is what I want for our men to catch. You guys are awesome, by the way, but I'm just saying there's more. And Eric has a powerful testimony. He is a businessman and so if you're a businessman and you need your business blessed, I just grab him. I already told him he has to pray for people today. <laughs> And so he's on assignment, so if you need a blessing, he's the man to talk to. But um, Eric and Sonia, come on up, and I'm giving them. Um, I've invited them to share their hearts and what it means to be in community and what it means to be in family, even though we're in different locations geographically. Go ahead. Hop on, hop on up so they can see you guys, how beautiful you are. Yeah. Well, happy Mother's Day to all the moms, and as uh, you can imagine, it has been an amazing Mother's Day for me because of Tamara's graduating. And uh, many, some of you maybe have seen us a um, couple of times here, but we love you. We love your church and what you represent here in Claremont. And I'm going to ask my husband to speak first. We... Uh we want to talk with you. We're, we're going to try to squeeze about four years of testimony, probably six years of testimony, into about 15 minutes. Ten. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah, she needs five. Okay. So, uh, um, and there's, there's several different thoughts I have. I want to try to conjugate them for you. But one of the things that's very important that, that 
is relevant to our experiences. When the economy went sour here a few years ago, we were not immune to that, okay? We effectively lost everything that, except for those things that the bankruptcy court lets you keep, okay? So we lost everything. Um, and it was during or, and after that, as we began to step into rebuild mode, that Tamara began to really begin to flourish and grow academically. And I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but this little island of schools down here, these are five of the top 20 schools in the country. Okay, this little town of Claremont is a world-changing city, little town here, okay? And so, and I believe that we are called to be history makers. My daughter will make history. And we are to be called, we are called to become world shakers. So I want to come back and talk about that. But with the other thing that's really important about the fact that we were broke and she got in here academically, what the word tells us is that we are to raise up our children in the way that they should go. So I'm not supposed to raise my daughter the way I'm supposed to go. <laughs> I'm supposed to raise her the way she is supposed to go. And there's many, many promises in the word, but one of those promises is that when we have children, our children are an inheritance from God. Everybody understands what an inheritance is. An inheritance doesn't come with a bill, okay? An inheritance is just that. It's an inheritance. And what we understand, the promise of God's word is that when he gives us children, he promises to provide for us everything we need to fulfill our obligation to raise them up in the way that we would go. And I want you to know that it was actually members of my own family. They wouldn't say it to me, but they said it amongst themselves when we started going on the college tours, okay, because she was accepted and admitted into several schools. And so they're traveling around, her and Sonia are traveling around going to the schools. My family was like, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how they pay for that. Okay, not a very encouraging words and you hear about them. But with that, I, I'll summarize this little part by saying that she just graduated from one of the most expensive colleges in the country and she has no debt and we are not the ones who paid for everything. It is because, it really is because God made provision. And when we were, I mean, I don't know if you guys know what it costs to go to school down here, do they know? Between sixty and sixty-five thousand dollars a year is what it costs to go to school down here, and and then on top of that, I mean that's just the basic stuff. Okay, this is a very very expensive undertaking to come to these schools down here. So when we were trying to figure out how we're going to do it, we didn't know. Okay, I mean I could not say to her, yeah, we'll just write a check. Did not happen that way. Notwithstanding the fact that we didn't know how it was going to happen, we didn't stop going after the process. You know, we didn't stop the process. We're still bringing her up in the way that she should go and watching. And God is really cool because God has been to the end of time. He's been through every day in your life and my life. And he has left a grace and a provision every day, for every day, whatever it is that you need for every day. And so what is our job? Our job is to go discover what the grace is. We have to go find it. Okay, we're walking out our salvation. We go find the grace. Okay, and it is, it's a very, very exciting thing. And, and so we're, we're talking about provision and in, in a sense calling. And I, and I want to 
I'm going to hand this off to Sonia here in a minute, because provision comes in many forms. But also, the same way we were not deterred when trying to figure out how to get tomorrow through school, okay, I think that there is a purpose not only for our lives individually, but there is a purpose for our lives corporately. And it is not a mistake that you are geographically less than a mile from an, an educational center. There must be a calling and a purpose for this group right. in this place relative to that place. Okay? And even if you can't see how it's going to get done, don't be deterred. Because I don't know how it's going to get done either, but I know that God has a plan. Okay, and we just have to walk it out, figure out the plan. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to turn this over back over to my wife here because provision really does come in a lot of different ways. So here, here you go. Yeah, and it is very exciting to see exactly what uh, my husband was saying. And I just encourage the people that come regularly to this church, you have to be open-minded. The generation that is just a few blocks away, it's not how I was raised. I had to adjust. I had to learn. That doesn't mean I had to put down my values or what I believe in God. No. But I had to change things in my mind if I wanted to be and to get in touch with my daughter instead of pushing her away because mom is so like, buy the book, buy the Bible, you do this because God says you have to do it. I had to listen to her. I had to be open to a completely different way of thinking. So I encourage you, do not be afraid, not be like when these bright minds, there are like, I call them uh, walking brains. <laughs> it is, I cannot have a conversation with them. My husband can. They just go like, ooh, what, what how did they say, how, how, how is that? But... Um, that's, that's me, but you, you are here to reach the world, right? Mm -hmm. So are you going, this is so incredible what Pastor uh, Josh was saying. If you want them to adapt to you, how you were raised, how you have to dress, how, they are not going to come. Let me tell you, that's not what this generation needs. They need hope, they need encouragement. They are four years without their parents here. Some they live in India, in Singapore, in China. They are looking for something, and they are going to listen to what somebody is telling them over there. But you are the voice of God right here in this town. So please, for the ones we, I mean, I remember in my church when the music was starting to be a little bit louder, I was like, oh, oh why? I mean, this is too much. And, and then... You see all these young people praising God, with like laying down at the floor, and I'm like, this is I'm I'm going to heaven. I have Jesus. Yeah. I mean, I try to live a moral, good life, so I'm not worried that things can happen. But these people, they need that. Then they start. They put it. We go to a big church, a big giant screen, like with lights and. So that they, they change everything, and we come, I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is this? This is Hollywood. Are we changing church? I cannot stand that. I, had, I couldn't even hear what pastor was saying because of the lights and this. And I was like, Lord, Lord, please, is this still our place here? Are we still coming here? Or you are changing? And he's like, 
no, you are changing. I'm uh. like, ah, okay. <laughs> Breaks, go home for a week, seeking God. Are you sure? Okay, okay, I have like, breathe in, breathe out. It's going to be okay. I'm not going to complain to the pastor like, what are you doing with the money that we're giving to? I'm like, it, it was a shock. And now if you see our church full of these young people, uh, from 18 to 30, it's half of our church. Mm -hmm. But if we stay like, oh, no, we have to uh, be confined to our own religious beliefs and minds, we're losing a generation. Mm -hmm. Well, all that to say that when I dropped my daughter here, which it was a shock for me culturally, I'm from Mexico, and in Mexico, kids stay in your home, go to the... Uh, university that is close to your house, they don't move out, and when opportunities started to happen for her, I had to come to the Lord and say, okay, put peace on me, and I would let her go. And so I remember that day, I cried so much. Uh, yes, yes, it, it, it was difficult, but I was like, okay, Lord, now it's her time. All that we have teach, taught her and into her. Now we are going to see if she really wants to go to church, if she's looking for a group. What, what is going to happen? I need her to find that now for herself. So he, she couldn't come to any church that week, uh, churches um, that weekend because she had already meetings. And we came here and we introduced to your incredible pastors that you have. And we just said, well, and they're like, oh, are you here? Well, do you move? No, we just drop our daughter at Claremont McKenna. And, uh, oh, please, Miko was saying, give me her phone number. And I'm like, you know, I didn't want to impose, like, Miko, the super nice person that she's, she will be calling to my daughter. I'm like, no, no, I need to let Tamara start to making those steps by herself. I, you have the, the more like loving, kind pastors that if you don't know that or you know it, you have to again listen to the, that, that they are amazing. They, Tamara came by herself. I just said, we went to this church. It's like a block. You can't walk. It is right there. And then she, the next Sunday, she said, Mom, I went there. Oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to see other churches. I don't know if she ever made it to other churches. And she said, Mom, the Lord says that I, I'm to go there. And this couple took my daughter under their wings. And for a mom that lives in Phoenix and doesn't know who to call if something happens, I could call Miko and I could call Josh or my husband and say, please, just be with her. This happens. And we had a couple of situations that I needed to give some news to my daughter when my dad passed. And I didn't know who I'm going to call that somebody will be next to her and hug her while she cries and all that. And these people are our family here. Yeah. It was like such a peace for me. Now I told my daughter, I'm at peace these four years, and now it's over. I don't want it to be over. <laughs> this, this is amazing. So you have to pray and 
care for your pastors. It's not easy to be a pastor. We have been close to many leaders in our lives, and we know all how we, you want everything perfect, and you complain about everything, and why they don't do this, and why they do the other, and you, you just know that they are seeking God, and they want the best for the city, for you, for the families that are here. So love them. Don't criticize them. Encourage them. If you don't like something, pray for it. God will speak to this man. I mean, when you hear him preaching, you know he had been at the feet of Jesus, listening to the word that wants to be preached here. So encourage them. Love them. If you criticize something, come with a solution. Not just, oh, this doesn't work. Oh, doesn't work? Do you have the solution? I mean, I, I just love you so much. And I know, I'm, no, yeah, no. my five minutes are, okay, okay. Actually, I just wanted to tie it back to provision. Because this is the spiritual support and relational provision that God provided to our family while we're separated geographically. Okay, because see, financial, we think of provision as just having the pantry full. Okay, fat wallet. Actually, provision is a far more broad word than that. And when God says he's going to make us prosperous, which he's providing for us, it is in absolutely every aspect of your life, including the quality of the relationships that he brings. Because, you know, we, we, she will probably get to this, but we never asked them, but beyond a couple of specific events, we didn't ask them to do anything for tomorrow. We asked God to provide for tomorrow. They just listened. Okay, that's, I mean, that really is it. I mean, so, so when you think about whatever the situations that you're dealing with, whatever provision you need, it doesn't matter if it's money, if it's a friend. I mean, I don't know what it is, okay? But just know that the reason we are here is because we overcome by the word of the blood of the Lord and the word of our testimony. Well, we are testifying to you today that it doesn't matter what your circumstances are, whether it's financial, relational, marital, it doesn't matter. Pick an area, okay? God's going to provide. Yeah, okay. So just to close, we would like uh, parents that, are, that have kids uh, in your home and you have no clue how God is going to provide for their education and you are like thinking, oh my, I don't have, I don't know, I, I don't know anybody. How I'm going to do this? God is going to do it. We want to pray for uh, the parents that need that encouragement because if God did it for us, he's going to do it for any of you. There's no reason why. So if you are a father or a mom that you are like, I don't know how we will provide for the education, please stand up. We want to just pray over you the same anointing that uh, God has uh, that has done for us. So if you are in that position, please stand up right now. Uh, we want to pray for you. Yes. That's good. Thank you for being yes. bold yes. and standing up. Thank Sometimes you, Jesus. Thank you. Okay. Yes. The, the same way when he talks about having the, the self-control. Can you hear me? Can you all hear me? When, when pastor's talking about having the self-control, you know, we can read God's promises all day long. That doesn't mean it's easy to fully trust in self-discipline. Uh, anyway, I'll get off the preaching part. But 
I'm proud of you all for standing up and recognizing that we don't always have it all figured out. And so, you know, Father, we just want to pray right now, and, and, and we're so grateful to you, Father. I mean, it really comes down to that, that. We're just grateful for everything that you have done in our lives and the lives of our daughter. And we recognize that you are the creator and you are the ultimate provider. We also, <clears throat> we also recognize that you are no respecter of persons. And what that means and the way we understand that, Father, is that what you have done for me, you will do for him and you'll do it for her. You'll do it for all of these people that are standing around here that are facing situations similar to the ones that we faced. And so we just thank you, Father, for your provision into their lives. We call it in. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would just lay it on their hearts. Give them the peace that is beyond all understanding, knowing that the provision is coming even when they don't know how it's going to manifest. We ask that you would calm their hearts, speak to them, help them be led into that place of understanding that your provision is coming because your word is so full of the promises and their children are an inheritance from you and they didn't come with a bill, they came with a long list of surprises on how you're going to provide for them, Father. And so we're just so grateful to you, Father. We praise you and we now we thank you that that provision is done. It's made. All we have to do is walk... They all they have to do is walk into it, Father. In Jesus' powerful, powerful name we pray. Mm. Amen and amen. And just one last thing. If you are a single mom, mm. that you have kids in your house and every day is a struggle, you wonder, oh, how I'm going to do this by myself. I would like you to stand up and I want to pray for you. Because it is very different when you have a husband. We didn't have, we lost everything, but we had each other. And at least we could pray or cry or scream together. But I understand. I can, I know what it is to be just by yourself and saying, now what, Lord? So if you are a single mom, mom, that you have kids, today is Mother's Day. I want you to receive encouragement from God that when you go out today, you say, God, thank you because you are with me. You will provide for me. So if, if there are any single moms that would like to be prayed for. Okay, can you come? Yes, thank you. Any other single mom? Wow, a lot of marriages <laughs> yeah. here. Okay. Cool. Yes. Well, Father, we just thank you for this mom, Lord, because she is not alone. You are uh, her husband. You are the father to her children, Lord. And you will be with her father in every step of the way. And what the, these circumstances had happened to her, this is not you. You are going to open a bright path, and she will see your hand in everything, Lord. Provision, love, peace, health, Father. And um, you are going to do even things that she cannot even ha believe or imagine, Lord. You are going to surprise her, Lord in a tangible way that she will know you are with her, Father. Encourage her heart this Mother Day. She is not alone, Father. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen and amen. Thank you. All right. Wasn't that a blessing, folks? It definitely was. All right, if I get the ushers to come up to the front. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for provision. Thank you for providing, God. Let's continue just to minister to our souls. Give us a good day of fellowship. We pray this in your name. Amen.